So go ahead, once you get those Bibles, open them up, please, to Matthew chapter 21. We pick it up today as we left off at verse 27 last week. Let's pick it up in verse 28, this. Read along with me if you would, please. But what do you think? A man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work today in my vineyard. And he answered and said, I will not. But afterward he regretted it and went. Then he came to the second and said, Likewise. And he answered and said, I go, sir. But he did not go. Now which of the two did the will of his father? Well, they said to him, the first. Jesus said to them, Well, assuredly, I say to you that tax collectors and harlots enter the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you did not believe him, but tax collectors and harlots believed him. And when you saw it, you did not afterward relent and believe him. And here another parable. There was a certain landowner who planted a vineyard. He set a hedge around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower, and he leased it to vine dressers, and he went into a far country. And when vintage time drew near, he set his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, beat one, killed one, stoned another. And again, he sent other servants. You wouldn't want to be any of those servants, would you? He sent other servants more than the first, and they did likewise to them. And last of all, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. So they took him, cast him out of the vineyard, and killed him. To the, and then he says, Therefore, when the, vine, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? Well, they said to him, He will destroy those wicked men miserably and lease his vineyard to other vine dressers who will render to him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I say to you, by the way, that's quoting from Psalm 118. Uh, now therefore I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a nation bearing the fruits of it. And whoever falls on this stone will be broken. But on whomever it falls, it will grind him to powder. When the chief priests and Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking of them. But when they sought to lay hands on him, they feared the multitudes because they took him for a prophet. You pray with me, please. Father, I thank you for the privilege of being able to be in your word. And I thank you for these next 45 minutes or so, Lord, that you would minister profoundly, teach us, Prepare us for your table as we have communion today, Lord, that we would go boldly, but with a clean conscience, as you tell us, Lord, to, to observe ourselves, knowing that he who eats or drinks in an unworthy fashion, eats or drinks condemnation upon himself, and we would, it's the last thing on earth we want to do. So today, Lord, speak to us, I pray. Have your way. And I just love you, Lord, and I thank you so much. So now, Lord, immerse me in your Holy Spirit. Come upon me. And Lord, in doing so, may your word burst open and come alive and captivate us now in your word. May we truly have so much fun in your word. But Lord, speak to us. Transform us. Revolutionize us today. May our eyes be open and may we get it. Redeem every second, we pray. As we commit this time to you, Lord, now, have, have your way, we pray. In Jesus' name, 
Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Never just believe me. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always have the final say. Don't ever just take my word. Take the word for it. Now, Jesus has made his way into Jerusalem. In route, we have in Matthew, I'm sorry, in Luke 9 through nine, the middle of 19, 952 through the middle of 19, we have Luke recording that trip down. On that trip down, Jesus tells us the parable about a fig tree that for three years had been fruitless. And in those fruitless three years, we're told that they were given, it was given borrowed time, a little extra time to redeem itself, if you will. A last chance before it was cut down because it had been looking for fruit and there was none. Jesus now has entered into Jerusalem on what we know of as the Passion Week, the last week that Jesus will spend physically before us. On that Sunday, it's a bittersweet triumph. People are, are chanting, Baruch HaVavashem Adonai, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They are chanting from the very psalm, Hoshana, God, save now. Psalm 118, the very psalm that Jesus quotes now here in our text. Jesus knows that though they're willing to say save now, it was on their terms. Saving them from what they once saved from and how they once saved from. And they really have no interest in his lordship if you will, just his service. On Monday, Jesus starts house cleaning. He does as we might say in this, he sorts of drives out the leaven, the very thing that you would do as you prepare yourself for the Passover. Jesus does it by, if you will, digging up the root of the problem in selfish religion. He shows us this clear, practical issue of, so, of, of, of a temple so cluttered it is incapable of doing what it is created for at this point, which is fellowship with God in prayer. Once Jesus clears the temple, at that point then we read that the blind and the lame come to him and he heals them. The very place that had become a marketplace now has become a place of healing. Now it's Tuesday. It is Tuesday before Jesus' arrest on Thursday night, his execution on Friday, his resurrection coming Sunday. This is a busy week. And on this day, there is a cursed fig tree. He had come looking for fruit, but he found only leaves. I imagine reminding him about time all the way back in the garden where fig leaves were used as a cover-up for the sin that Adam and Eve had divulged in themselves. And now what we see is that each corrupting parasitic group to this fruitless tree are going to make themselves emerge out of the darkness and challenge God's son. We saw the beginning of that with the chief priests. And, and the elders who have asked him, because they're the ones in essence who are authorities, they ask him, who do you think you are? Who gave you that authority? For which Jesus speaks of John the Baptist and says, well, let me volley with a question. Answer mine, I'll answer yours. Well, who gave, you, who gave John that authority? And the people know, the chief priests and the elders know that they're a bit trapped because if they say that John had received his authority from God, well, then... Jesus would say, well, then why didn't you believe him? He was the one who told me, told you about me. But if they say not from God, well, then they feared being stoned by the people because everyone took John as a prophet. Well, notice in our text, Jesus is still speaking to the chief priests and the elders. There's no break. And the leaders are not only listening, but they're responding to his questions. He asks in the beginning of this in verse 28, what do you think? When he tells the parable in both cases, there are questions and they identify in the first who is the truly innocent party that they are not, by the way, and the proper punishment for the evil groundskeepers that they actually are. Jesus will say to these people that 
tax collectors and prostitutes will come into heaven before you will. And even though the religious leaders present themselves as the first, Jesus will say that the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you when given to a people that bear the fruit of it. And there again is a king looking for his fruit. What we have here in this text is Jesus showing us how to have a fruitless walk, which I would imagine none of us would want. Jesus had said, I've come that you would bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. And some of us, maybe we wonder, why in the world are we not bearing fruit, at least fruit that's decent or that would last or good fruit? And and understand, we're going to see in this parable, these two here, and in the following parable in the following chapter, that Jesus really does show us what it really looks like, the things that will keep you from being fruitful. And therefore, it is something we really need to take a careful look at. He'll show us in these three parables and before he's accosted in 22.15, the parable of the two sons we see, and then the irreverent groundskeepers, and then a king's feast in the following chapter. And then the characters, if you notice, move from disobedient sons to rebellious groundkeepers to, to people God will call murderers in the third parable. Then will come the, par- the Pharisees, and then the, scri- or the Sadducees, and then the scribes, in which case, all of which will try to present some form of challenge to Jesus to try to shut him down. Then will come chapter 23 when Jesus will lay them bare and drop the mic. And you definitely don't want to be the recipient of chapter 23. So as Jesus starts this, now we ask. So you might ask us the same question today. What do you think? A man had two sons. That's where we start this. And notice, by the way, both are in one way or another initially disobedient. Because words mean nothing. He goes to the first son and he says, come work in my vineyard. Now, he will then develop the issue of the vineyard in the second uh, parable, of course, where he tells us about one who dug then, put the wall up, put up the tower, and he, bu- he dug a wine, created a wine vat. Now, understand, all of that stuff is really normal. But for those of you who are fairly quick to Scripture, go back for a moment just to kind of prepare us to the book of Isaiah. Because I want you to realize Jesus isn't making this stuff up as if there is nothing to go on. Now, if you're new to Scripture, if you close your Bible and open it in the middle, chances are you'll get the book of Psalms. Then as you go to the right, the next really big book will be the book of Isaiah. And you want to go to Isaiah chapter 5. This takes us back now, if you will, sort of backstory, about 700 to 750 years. I love that. I love watching you guys flip or turn in your apps. And Isaiah 5, verse 1, he's God, this is God's so He says, let me sing a song, or if you will, sing to my well-beloved, a song of my beloved regarding his vineyard. My well-beloved has a vineyard on a very fruitful hill. He dug it up. He cleared out its stones. He planted it with the choicest vine. He dug a tower in its midst and also made a wine press, very much like we'll see again in the second parable. So he expected to bring forward good grapes, but it brought forth wild grapes. Can you say this word with me? Bashim. That was good. Bashim is the Hebrew word here for wild. It isn't like wild grapes. Yeah. Wild here is the word bashim, and it means poison. It comes from the root word baosh, which means to stink. He came, he planted the best vine on a best hill with the best soil with the best of everything, and he'd done all of the best work with that to make sure that it would produce. And much to his dismay, it produced a poisonous, stinky grape. 
God says in verse 3, And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge, please, between me and my vineyard. And I love this question God asks in verse 4. What more could have been done to my vineyard that I have not done? I was like, what more did I need to do? Was there anything else? Was there anyhow, in some way, negligence upon my part? Was there anything I could have done that could have made this better? Why then? When I expected to bring forth good grapes, did it bring forth wild grapes? And now, please let me tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, it shall be burned down. And break down its wall, it shall be trampled down. And I will lay waste, it shall not be pruned or dug. But there shall come up briars and thorns. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain on it. And look at verse 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah are his pleasant plant. He looked for justice, but behold, oppression. For righteousness, but behold, a cry for help. God tells us the vineyard he speaks about, by the way, as you notice here, is the house of Israel. And the men of Judah, the pleasant plant. He speaks about his own people being properly planted there and yet producing that which was poisonous instead of that which should have brought joy. Back in our text, there is a vineyard that needs to be tended to. And in our first parable, I don't know how many sons the guy has, but two of them are approached. Notice with the first one, he says, go, and the son goes, nah, not going. However, he tells us that he regretted it later, and he went. Back in our text in Matthew 21, what becomes clear is there is a regret that can lead to true repentance. We can go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 to see that more clearly in verses 9 and 10. And what God tells us is, just because a person is sorry does not mean they're going to repent. He tells us there's two kinds of sorrow. There's a sorrow that's a worldly sorrow and it produces death. And in the simplest sense of it all, you feel really bad about things. You start thinking about yourself. You want things to be better, but you really want the circumstances to lessen. But you don't really hate the sin that caused it. And you watch people because they hate the moment because their sin has caused all kinds of problems. But if all they really hate are the circumstances and the consequences, the moment those seem to lessen, and they will, they'll be back in their sin in a heartbeat. On the other side of it, if you hate your sin, well, you'll do whatever is necessary to never get near it again. There's the difference. In our text here, the father goes to the first son and he says, go and work in my vineyard. And the son says, no way. But somewhere down, he's like, oh, man, you know, that was really stupid. Why did I do that? I shouldn't have done that. And he went out and he worked in the vineyard. Now, when he came to the second in verse 30, he said, likewise. And then that son actually says, OK, I'll go. I'll go, sir. Sir, a term of respect. But he didn't go. Now, notice, by the way, for what it's worth, Jesus never de- he never develops nor delineates those who didn't go. And you have to ask, did he intend to, but he didn't make it? Did he get sidetracked? Did he just never get around to it? Was he distracted, derailed? Was he in a place where he really had the best intentions, but somehow just never got to the field? Or did he never really intend to at all? You know, what's interesting. Jesus doesn't develop this, and I believe on purpose, because in the end, regardless, in the end, regardless, it's still the same. He never went. And that's really the point. Now, look at how many times have we said something 
And we, we said it with the very best of intentions, perhaps even with the greatest amount of emotion. And, and really inside, we were convinced that we were speaking absolute truth about our commitment to God. We said, God, I'll go. I'll go to your vineyard. I'll do what you want. No matter what it is, you tell me I'm on it. And your commitment at that moment was just as solid as Peter that said he was willing to die with Jesus before he denied him three times. And I bet Peter believed it completely. But emotions may make a great ignition, but they're no steering wheel. They may get you off the couch, but they won't get you finishing the job. It takes a commitment greater than that. In this situation, no matter what it is, at the end, either you've gone to the field or you haven't. And in this particular story, then Jesus asks, and I remind you, the chief priests and the elders, those are the ones responsible for teaching people with the Pharisees, scribes, and the Sadducees. And he looks at these individuals and he says, oh, let me ask you a simple question here. Well, which one was actually, in the end of it all, which one was obedient? The one who said he wouldn't go, but wound up in the field. Or the one that actually gave all kinds of lip service, but never really made it out there at all. For which, of course, they answer. They said the first. That's a simple question with a very simple answer. And Jesus goes, now, which one are you? Because there are a lot of people giving out lip service. And you guys are great at lip service. You guys really know what you're doing. However, in regards to what you're saying. However, on the other side of it, tax collectors and prostitutes, they sound a lot like that first son, don't they? Oh, I won't go. I'll never go to church. I'll never set foot in a place like that. I'll never have anything to do with Jesus. That's where they start. But somewhere down the line, there's some genuine regret that brings them to it. And in the end of it all, all the people who gave lip service but never really came, never really went to the field that God called them to. Well, they, on the other hand, they're just the disobedient brother. And I remind you, the last time Jesus gave a parable about a couple brothers, there was a son who did a whole lot of horrible stuff but came home and was restored. And another brother who, by the time the story is over, had never really seemed like he left the house. But he's the bad guy by the end of the story because he's upset that the brother came home. Think that through. Now, which one are we? Either we are we the one that fills the air with all kinds of beautiful empty promises that dissipate the moment we're out of these doors? That we want to tell God all these great things, but really, if we're going to be honest, we're just a different person once we leave the church. We're a person here, we're heroic, but out there we're actually the criminal that puts a damsel in distress in the first place. Now, I think it is interesting that Jesus uses the term tax collectors, because the guy who's writing this down happens to be a former one, doesn't he? And I wonder what that would be like for Matthew to have to write these words down, looking at the guys who were the religious elite in the sight of the people. You know, it's interesting. Jesus would say, not everybody who says to me, Lord, Lord, will even, not even anyone who calls me Lord will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father. And that's the question Jesus asks, isn't it? Who did the will of the Father? You know, it's interesting. Jesus makes clear what that is in John 6:40. When he says, this is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. And I'll raise him up on the last day. The first thing I can tell you is God wants you his. He desires no one to perish, but all to come to repentance. Do you know him? Have you accepted the gift of his son? Regardless of where you've come from, maybe you came from a life like a tax collector or a harlot. It really doesn't matter where you started. 
The issue is, did you wind up where you're supposed to be or not? Because all the lip service in the world won't mean anything otherwise. And so he says then, in verse 32, John came. And he came by the way of the righteousness, by the way. By the way of righteousness, but you didn't believe him. He says, but tax collectors and harlots, the proof was in the pudding, right? Oh, they heard him, but they didn't just hear him, they believed him. But when you saw that tax collectors and harlots were believing what John was saying, that didn't convince you either. When you watch a tax collector or a harlot transformed, when you watch a drug dealer or a thug, when you watch somebody who's just a, an emotional basket case, when you watch somebody that's a menace to themselves and to others around them, which, by the way, if we're all honest, that was all of us to some degree. When you watch that change, it should be the evidence, all the evidence you need to say, this Jesus thing is for real. And in that particular text here then, Jesus looks at them and tells them, you're at the back of the queue at best here. He says, you know why? Because John's message came to you just like it did to them. But you did nothing with it. As a matter of fact, this is what it says in Luke 7.30, and I ask you to hear it clearly. Jesus, we will, will we read Luke writing and penning it down for God. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, refusing to be baptized by John. I mean, I read that verse. I don't know how you could ever possibly see that God's will is unrejectable. When you read here that the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, refusing to be baptized by John. Which means that God had a will. And what God really wanted was for them to be baptized. God really wanted for them to repent. And even though God really wanted them to repent, they didn't. God is not going to get his way. And this takes us to the first of the two areas of how to be completely fruitless. The way to be fruitless like this fig tree that was cursed is to make it all about what you say and not about what you do. It's all about lip service. Now, that seem Isaiah would write, and again, seven to 750 years ago, 700 to 750 years ago, in Isaiah 29, 13, in the issue Jesus will requote then in Matthew 15 over defilement, is that these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And then he says this, in vain they worship me. Do you know what that means? It means all the songs, all the performance, all the great dumb shows are empty and worthless in the sight of God. Because what God's really looking at is the heart, I remind you. The outer appearance is what man observes. But it's God who looks at the heart. And let me ask, what about you? What about me? I mean, if we're going to be honest, if we're really going to just lay this thing out, how much of my Christianity is about what I say in this building? You realize what you do is including what you say. It is to whom you say it. And I hear people say, you know, on one side, well, you know, I'm just going to let my actions speak for, my, for itself. But your actions do not draw conclusions to where you should go with that. And we've been in places where we've tried to preach the gospel to people and say everyone is evil. And we've been in third world countries where other groups that were Christians went and did very great things but never did it in Jesus' name. And they're, they're confused because they're like, well, those are nice people and they're not Christians. Look at the nice things they've done for us. 
And our response is, actually, they are Christians, or at least they're supposed to be. They're just too coward to tell you. How much of our life really looks like people who belong to our God? There was a couple that came in for counseling. The good news is it's in America, and I'd like to think that, you know, you will never meet them, so it's fairly safe to tell the story. But the, what had happened is the woman had gotten uh, brain cancer, and, it, and she had been horribly weakened as a result of it. It was a rough situation for her. Her husband, as of several, uh, many years, uh, took that opportunity, by the way, and said he was going to the store, and he left for the store and didn't come back for several months. He had met a girl, and this was the time to leave, to leave his wife, who was in great need in the midst of her therapy, in the midst of her chemotherapy. She was left alone. When he came back, he had had enough ultimately, or she had had enough. But one way or another, he made it back. And from that point on, she kind of, this other gal, had her claws in him. He never changed his phone number. He never did anything to make himself unfindable. He never really permanently broke it off. You know, one of those kind of things where you kind of do this, well, we probably shouldn't do this anymore. Like that's completely conclusive and with great conviction. You know, and, and with that, she would kept, she'd keep calling him and he'd disappear. He'd disappear for days. And they came in, needless to say, for couples counseling. And he looks me straight in the face and says, you know, I love my wife more than anything. Would any of you agree with him? I actually started to laugh. It was so absurd. I actually started to laugh. (laughs) That's ridiculous. You love yourself more than anything. He went for my throat. The point is, I really believe he believed that at that moment. But his actions completely denied Everything that he was saying with his mouth. What was clear is his heart had not... I'm like, look, if you really did... You want that gal out, you need to let her know. You put a restraining order on her, you change her phone number. Well, that's going to mean I'm going to have to contact a lot of other people to tell them about my new number. Well, sounds like that's your plan then, isn't it? You do what is necessary to shut the door and build a wall there so you don't go out of it again. And we know that. When someone's serious, they do what is necessary to make it happen. But when our actions deny the very words that we say, our words are really meaningless. And you really want to be fruitless? I hopefully not. Well, the quickest way to do that is to placate yourself with words here, but then have no actions to substantiate it once you leave the building. Let's be honest. The strange part is, I remind you, these were God's people he was speaking about with his vineyard and his choice vines. Let me ask you, how are you with God's people? Do you love them? Do you serve them? Do you encourage them? Do you pray with them? Do you, or, do you, or do you rather seek fellowship with the world? I remind you, fellowship means something you have in common. Because you think, well, they're always going to be better people. No, they're not. It's strange how we expect perfection from God's people. But we have total grace for the lost. Well, with that in mind, needless to say, Jesus nails them and tells them, by the way, you're aware of the fact that you're actually the disobedient son in the story. From there, Jesus then puts out our second of the two parables for the day. Here, another parable. At this point, I'd be a little nervous. How about you, if you were one of the people in his audience? There was a certain landowner, and he planted a vineyard. And what's clear about this guy is he knew what he was doing. He set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, built a tower, leased it to vine dressers, and went into a far country. This is the average story, and everybody in Israel knew it. And again, I remind you, 700 years before this, Isaiah had already given us this story. 
back in Isaiah 5. Notice, by the way, that because he planted the vineyard, he had a plan for it. He set a hedge around it, so he put protection on it. He dug a wine press in it, so that means he had purpose for it. He built a tower, which means he prized it, and he expected other people to want it too. The tower is to guard it from people from thieves. And he leased it to vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, needless to say, as we've already heard the parable once, the vine dressers in the story are the bad guys. They're the ones that are supposed to be tending the vines, taking care of the vines. And in this particular story, these are the people who, by the way, are supposed to be responsible for the fruit. Traditionally, when a, vine, when a, vine, a vineyard owner leases it out then to tenant farmers, he gives them a third. He takes two-thirds of the fruit. They get a third of the fruit. So needless to say, the more fruitful the vineyard is, the better it is for the people who work it, too. They get it cut. Now, somewhere in all of this, they've had some time. Time has elapsed between the time of planting, which usually, by the way, is in the late fall, to the time of, uh, if you will, to the time of the vintage, which is in the early fall. So roughly, if you think about it, roughly a year has gone by. Uh, we came originally from California, and the place where we came from, just about 20 miles east of us, was vineyard territory. It was amazing, but apparently it's really big business, because it's the only houses that were the size of this church that you ever saw were the houses that were vineyard owners. And it was interesting, a lot of the things that they had, you know, I, I would learn a lot from them, when the things were to crop, when things were to trim. Some of those people started coming to our church. Um, how they would put these, like, sort of, Almost like those kind of tinsel things that you would put on, on uh, Christmas trees. They would hang them as well because it scares off the birds because otherwise the birds eat all your grapes and there goes all your profit. And I remember talking to them about these stories. I go, could you imagine leasing this out to the people that you're actually having handle your, your vineyard and them actually wanting to kill your family just to try to get it? Notice in this story that he gave them several chances. He said in the first case that he sent servants. They beat one, killed another, stoned another. Then he sent more, and even more than the first, for which it says that they did likewise. And the Mark account, what it tells us is the whole thing kind of grows. It goes more violent, and it becomes a lifestyle. And that's the way it really does work with anyone that starts to try to reject Jesus. But Jesus isn't speaking about people who really just kind of look at you like you're a nincompoop because you're trying to share Jesus with them. In a case like this, he's talking about people, I remind you, that were hired by the one who owns the land. Now, by the way, he doesn't put an ad in a classified. People come to him. People who are tenant farmers come and present their pitch to him. So it wasn't like this guy just went and looked for people. People would come and say, hey, look, here's your vineyard. This is what I really believe we could do with it. This is my opportunity, and I really would like you to give me a shot at it. And imagine that's the case here. And he looks, and it's time now for them to reckon fruit. Now, in the first case, there was fruitlessness because everything was about lip service, and there was no action attached. In the second case, strangely enough, <clears throat> there appears actually to be fruit. But unfortunately, none of the fruit is actually given to the one to whom it rightly deserves, the one to whom it rightly belongs. Now, please understand something. I don't know where you've, what you've been taught in regards to the area of this earth that we stand on. But God never gave up 
ownership to it. There are people that would try to teach you this earth is the devil's. Well, that drives me crazy. Now, it does say that the world is under the sway of the wicked one. It tells us that in 1 John. But it tells us all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. We need to recognize this earth belongs to God. It is his. And Noah was given originally to man, if you will, to tenant farm. His negligence allowed others to step in. And as that is the case, I want to remind you that there is a whole process that needs to take place to get the land back. So let's put this, let's play this out for a second and we'll finish our story and close this up. Let's say that Sarah, you kind of look like a landowner for the moment, Sarah. Sarah owns some land. She owns, she owns a beautiful choice piece of property somewhere outside in like Guilford. And there, there's some great vineyards to be grown. And as that is the case, let's say she rents the property out. She allows, and she's been uh, approaching her then is Daniel and Hugo. And Daniel and Hugo, where did Hugo go? Okay. Um, and the two of them, yeah, thank you. Hiding behind his wife. So Daniel and Hugo then say, well, we could take care of the property. We would really like to rent it. We'd like, we, we really believe that we can make the best of it. So with that in mind, they go and they start working the property. Sarah at that point then can go and start investing in another piece of property. So as Sarah starts to invest in looking at other pieces of property and such, Daniel and Hugo now are responsible. Joining them now is Bruno, and the power trio now is responsible to work the vineyard. As they're responsible to work the vineyard, let's say that they've gotten to the point where they've forgotten who really owns this property. You know, they are, in essence, the bosses. Now, they're going to hire other people. They're going to hire other people to work underneath them to work the vineyard as Jesus teaches us here, the responsibility to that. But ultimately, the purpose of it is to bear forth fruit for which two-thirds belongs to the landowner. Somewhere down the line, let's say that Sarah comes back, and as she comes back, she discovers that these men have no interest in actually putting themselves in the proper place of submission underneath the landowner, for which then they rally up and say, this is our property, and they shack themselves up in there, load up a few automatic weapons, and of course the whole thing gets a little bit ugly now. As that is the case, Sarah, 2,000 years ago, has a responsibility to get the land back. She properly owns that property. For her to do so, it's going to take three steps. And hear me on this. The first step is she needs to go to the city gate. And the reason she needs to go to the city gate is because that's where all the business transpires. For instance, the marriage of Ruth took place, and the deal for that in the story of Ruth takes place at the city gate. That's where business takes place. There she will take the ownership deed that should have all of her family and should follow that family line down. And she would open that before them at the gate. It's a private encounter because it's a business and it happens among the leaders of the city. It is a private thing where then her scroll that shows her ownership is properly opened with, by the way, the requirements that would have been sealed as well for those that were now the tenant farmers. That's the first of three steps. The second of those three steps then is she has to go and openly proclaim then to the rest of the town folk, y'all might want to get out of here because we're going to go and get this land back. So what happens with that is there are trumpets that are blown to call the, 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 the genuine people, the village people, together so that they could know that this property is going to be restored back to its proper owner. Are you following me so far? 
Third step then is once that property is properly reclaimed, the owner takes seven bowls of salt and sows it on the edges of the property to say that this property is now again cleansed and properly the property of the owner. And then, of course, the owner then can take it and lease it again to another vine dresser. Interesting, you're aware of the fact that we just went through the tribulation, chapter 6 through 19 of the book of Revelation. You're aware of that, right? Because the whole purpose is God bringing people to a choice to say yes to him. And with every one of those moments, there is an opportunity for the people to go quietly. But in the end of it all, all the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. It all belongs to him. By the way, you know what else is his? What he's made with this earth. Like the clay that somehow has been formed together to make your body. It belongs to him. And we'll get there next chapter when Jesus starts to speak about where you belong. Well, hear me on this. Jesus tells us now in our parable in chapter 21. But he says that this vineyard went and he had proper, you know, he had everything from vision to he had protection to he had purpose, everything for the vineyard, everything for every purpose for this thing to be great and fruitful. But unfortunately, those who occupy the property now are obviously being in having no interest in submitting to the proper landowner. So finally, we read in verse 37, he says, well, you know, what I'm going to do I'm going to send my son. Others were representatives, and I understand perhaps that they weren't willing to do that. However, they killed them. At this point, I'd be a little concerned to be the son. How about you? But Jesus is drawing in his audience. I remind you, the chief priests and the elders are his audience here as he speaks. He's going to ask him about this. So he says, all right, you know what? As a final step, I'm going to send my son. It tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1, in various ways and in various times, God spoke to us in former times through the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he's appointed heir of all things. God's final perfect statement was made with his son, Jesus the Christ. So the son comes. As the son comes, it tells us in verse 38 that the vine dressers saw the son. That tells us that this meeting takes place. They're unaware of the son coming. And as the son comes, they have this little meeting and they say, come, there's the heir. Let's kill him and seize the property for ourselves, his inheritance. The cares have become so deluded by this point and their crazy self-aggrandized authority that they think they were actually in control. That actually killing the master's son would give him the land. Any one of us that reads the story thinks this is insanity. Have they been so completely connected, disconnected from any remembrance whatsoever of the master that they've had the property so long now that they actually don't believe that they're going to be accountable for this? So Jesus looks then and says, by the way, notice in verse 39, they took him, cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Jesus has already spoken to us four different times about his execution on his way into Jerusalem. And here now, we see just as he promised, they will cast him out of Jerusalem and kill him outside the city gates. And he fills that, he fits that into the story as well. They cast him out of the vineyard. As they cast him out of the vineyard, they kill him. And then Jesus turns to those chief priests, who I remind you in this story, are the bad tenant farmers. And he's giving them a chance now to pronounce their own judgment. You're aware of that, right? Just like Nathan when he comes 
to David about David's adultery and murder? So he says then, well, therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those vine dressers? And they respond with this. He will destroy those wicked men miserably. Kakos apalumi. Kakos means very bad. Bad. Still used to this day in the, among the Greeks. You ask them, how are you doing? Tikani. Kalos means good. Kakos means bad. Phonos is sound. When something sounds really bad, we call it a cacophony. This is the same word that's being used. The word apalumi means to be destroyed to its fullest. Apo meaning out of. Lumi means to be completely loosed. By the way, it's an interesting thought, both in Greek and in Hebrew. The idea of something being completely loosed is the idea of something being destroyed. Isn't that an interesting thought? We talk about our life falling apart. It's the same concept. The men to which filled that particular part of the story, he says, so what will happen to them? And he says, oh, those men will be destroyed miserably to the uttermost. And then you know what he'll do after that? He'll lease his vineyard to other people who will render to him, notice what it says in verse 41, fruits in their due season. Fruits in their seasons, the proper fruits. In our first story, we see that what brings about great fruitlessness, by the way, in our own lives, is lip service with no action attached to it. In our second story, what we see is that what brings about great fruitlessness is our unwillingness to submit to the one to whom it properly belongs. We're busy searching for credit, so we pray in front of people. And our prayer life is always about showing in front of others. And our giving and our fasting, as Jesus speaks about in Matthew 6 and 7, it's to be seen by others. And for which Jesus says, well, don't expect anything from me. You already have all the applause you need. You got it when you did it in front of people in the first place. And he doesn't say that the, the problem was that they did it in front of people. And so they did it to be seen by those people. And in our second story, our second parables we see, it's all about you. Self-aggrandized, self-exalting, self-centered, self-everything. To where they have the chutzpah, if you will, to turn to God and say, who do you think you are to demand anything of me? And I want to say, as we bring this around now to close, this is the danger of contemporary Christianity if we're not careful. We get the idea that Jesus becomes the great biblical bellhop. He becomes our servant, but he isn't our master and Lord. But Jesus tells us there's no kingdom of heaven for us if we're not willing to make him Lord. And not everyone who even says Lord is actually going to be accepted. Because it's those who actually do the Father's will. So it's not like a casual term. Our life has to back it up. And let me ask you, are you banking on Jesus to be a kind Savior but have no interest in submitting to his Lordship? Because if that's the case, when God does bless you, you have no interest in doing anything that's going to bless anyone else with it. You're just trying to turn around and make it something for you. And this is how it ends. Jesus says, remember when the people, who, by the way, were just quoting Psalm 118, Hoshana, Lord, save now, bless this you, comes in the name of the Lord. Remember all that? Don't you realize in that same Psalm 118, it says that the stone that the builders rejected has become the capstone or the chief cornerstone? 
This was the Lord's doing marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of heaven will be taken from you and it will be given to a nation bearing or peoples and ethnos, a people bearing the fruit of it. And he warns us with this. Everybody's going to get the stone. I want to warn you, that capstone, that cornerstone, a stone of stumbling, if you want to try to walk over it, every one of us is going to encounter that stone. We're all going to need to deal with Jesus. And I want to warn you, every one of us will never be the same when you do. And he tells us there's only two options here. In the first case, he says you can fall on that stone. Did you notice that? Take a look at it with me, verse 44. You can either fall on that stone, but I warn you, if you fall on that stone, by the way, well, sunflaho is going to happen. Sunflaho means, by the way, to be dashed together, or we might say it this way, you're going to get shattered. Now it sounds like a really terrible thing, but it's nothing compared to the other. In the first case, when you fall upon God, by the way, what you're going to do is you fall upon that cornerstone to which all of eternity is built. You are going to break in pieces. You know why? Because so many of those pieces will never say yes to God. And he wants to replace them. And God really, really wants that. He wants to replace us and make us a new creation. It's all in Scripture. Second Corinthians 4, 7, 5, 7 tells us that whoever is in Christ is a new creation. God makes that clear. And to be a new creation means that he has a new position with us. One is our Lord. And if we fall on that, our life is going to be changed. It will be broken. But the other side of it, either you're going to fall on the stone or the stone's going to fall on you. And when the stone falls on you, by the way, the term that's there now is lukmao. And lukmao, by the way, the term here for grinding is actually the term that's used of a winnowing fan. And I'd like you to consider that. I mean, when you have for instance, you have grain, and that grain gets trodden by, you know, by the press that's there. It's sort of a sledge you know, that has these rocks and pieces of bone underneath it to kind of break the stalks that's light and basically straw from the pieces that you actually eat. And usually then you take that up to a threshing floor. That's called threshing. But you take it up to a mesa, a flat place, because the wind blows away the light stuff, of course, and the heavy stuff drops. Well, the heavy stuff's the stuff you eat. The light stuff's the straw. I don't know how many of you have ever made tea with loose tea. I am a big tea drinker. And when you make tea with loose tea, you've got to be careful to strain it. If you don't, what you have is a bunch of pieces that some fall to the bottom, some float to the top. And it's never as good of a cup of tea. It may taste good, but you're pulling things out of your teeth by the time you're done. Well, you really want those things gone. So what happens when the day isn't windy? You've got one day on the threshing floor, and it happens to be the nicest day for going out and playing football, but it's a terrible day for, for winnowing. Well, you have these big fans. And so what would happen is you would take something that was similar to a pitchfork, and you'd throw it in as you threw it up. Somebody else would take the fan, and they would go like this, and it blew away all of this stuff that was unnecessary that we would call the chaff. And that's the word that's used here. See, on one side of it, and you know this, we tell people you need to accept the gift of Jesus, but you know that the moment you accept the gift of Jesus, there are parts of your life that are going to be broken off that, to be honest, you'd rather hold on to. Issues of pride and self-centeredness, the very things that keep us from being fruitful we see in this second parable. Please do hear me in this. You may not want to be broken like that, 
But on the other side of it, if you have to stand before him having rejected him your entire life, all that's going to be left, your entire life is going to just blow away. Because there's nothing left. It'll be winnowed away. So which one do you want? Either way, there's going to be some crushing. But the good news is, when you hand your life to him, You've now taken the person who's flung the stars in their place and created the most majestic and beautiful universe. And you've put your hands, your life now in the hands of that artist to do something beautiful with, for which he calls nothing else his masterpiece but you. Could you imagine what he would make of your life if you gave him everything? But if you don't give him everything, then where do we fit into that second story? Because God continues to give us amazing things. Do we then say, well, that's mine. That belongs to me. Or do we realize to whom it all belongs? Beloved, as we go to prayer and prepare for the table of the Lord, let me ask you, have you accepted the gift of Jesus Christ? This is what the Bible says. All men are sinners. We all start in the same place. We all start off like those sons that in the first of the two parables that says, I'm not going to go or they're not in the field. We, we start disobedient, self-reliant, self-centered, self-aggrandizing people. In essence, we've declared war against them. And he created us to be with him. But God allowed us this provision that if we were willing to let someone that was perfect, that had no sin, step in our place, God would take our punishment and put it upon him if he was willing, which disqualifies every other human being that disqualifies every person who's called themselves, whatever religious leader they would, except for one, God's own son, selfless in every way, tempted in every way yet without sin. So Jesus was the only one who qualified, but the good news is he was also the only one who volunteered. I don't know why you would want to pick anyone else when he was the only one who volunteered to take your punishment for you, mine too. And there at the cross, Jesus paid for that price. And then with that, as been promised in Scripture, on the third day rose again. And in doing so, demands to be more than just Savior, but Lord. In our text here, by the time we are done, we see a son who is disobedient but filled the air with words of commitment for which none had any bearing. And then in the second story, we see here that there are those who actually were in the field, but that field was for them not for the owner and refuse as a result of that to submit themselves to what to to that which would properly owned and required by the owner himself I don't allow it to be you as we go to prayer may God work in our hearts today to say yes God have it all I recognize that that means brokenness will happen I recognize that that means that there will be problems challenges things that I will have to let go you are not a God of nots. You are a God of instead of. And for everything you remove, you replace. You'll always replace it with something better. And we have to be willing to let him. Because we definitely, I'd rather be in that hand than have that hand spanking me any day. Because the entire universe is marked by it. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for this beautiful text. We thank you, Lord, for the challenges you set before us. And in this, Lord, we know that even here, you've laid out the challenge before us to do so much more, Lord, than just pray a simple prayer and then in that simple prayer, 
sort of bank on the whole thing while letting our life be living like hell, but, but telling everyone we're going to heaven. Jesus, I know you didn't die for us just to forgive us. You died for us to be with us. Father, you didn't just create us to worship you or serve you. You created us to be with you. Everything else falls in line once that really properly happens. Because you've made clear the one thing you really want more than anything is for us to love you with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength. But we confess to you that even when the spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And today here, we desperately need you to step in. And we ask you to give us the courage to live a life outside these doors that is actually consistent with the proclamations we make inside here. And we pray today, God, here in this room, that your Holy Spirit would bring conviction, that we would make the changes that are necessary and give you permission to make the changes you desire. So, Lord, we've seen shattering, but we've told us even in that shattering, Lord, no matter how hard the storms would hit, the rain that would come, the winds that would blow, the floods that would rise, a life lived on you is a house that will stand. So here at the sound of this voice, if you've never accepted the gift of Jesus Christ, or maybe you're just not sure, or you can be sure, I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And if you agree with this prayer at the end, I simply ask for you to say amen, but understand what you're saying. What you're saying is, I agree. Let those words be my words. Let that prayer be my prayer. So be it in my life. And here's the prayer. God in heaven, I recognize I'm a sinner. I recognize I'm not right with you. But you've allowed the provision of sending your only begotten son, Jesus the Christ, to die on the cross for me so that all of my sin could be punished. And just as your scripture promised on the third day, rose again and demands to be my Lord, and I confess him as that. I believe he died for my sins and rose and is my resurrected King now. I confess Jesus as my Savior, but also as my Lord. Let my life now reflect that. Deliver me from a fruitless life, rather to one that testifies that you truly are Lord and that I'm a new creation, your masterpiece as you ordained. So here I am, I'm yours and belong to you. Have me now. In Jesus' name, if you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen. God here in this room as well, we just pray. As we claim to be yours, Lord, please keep us from a fruitless life. It isn't that we want to stop praising you, but we want a life that praises you consistent with the words we say. So, Lord, make us people who praise you with our lives as well as with our lips. Let our hearts be near you and not just our lips. And that we would be people that, gra- that gladly give you all. And as you send us, we'll go. But 
Lord, make our lives fruitful now, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen.